We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's going on, everyone? Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Ducks Dish Podcast. I'm your host, Max Torres, publisher and lead editor of Ducks Digest, covering the Oregon Ducks for Sports Illustrated on Fan Nation. We're doing things a little bit differently today. We're doing a a live version of the podcast. You can uh, go ahead and watch it on my YouTube channel, Oregon Football Max Taurus. And we are bringing back uh, a previous guest that we had, Salt Lake Tribune, Utah beat writer Josh Newman. We had a lot of great conversations the first time when these two teams played just a few short weeks ago. How are we doing, Josh? Doing well, Max. I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. I'm excited for it. Hopefully my – my internet was a little wonky the last time I did one of these, so hopefully it hopefully it hangs in with me here. Um, but yeah, I mean, wow, a lot of uh, a lot of stuff has happened since we last talked. You know, uh, obviously we saw that Oregon Utah game play out the way it did in Salt Lake City. Uh, there's been coaching carousel things, but I think that's kind of the area that I think would be cool to to dive into first um, as we kind of kick off the pod here. If you're watching live, thank you guys for tuning into the show, and if you're uh, tuning in on the replay. Leave me a comment about kind of your mood heading into this game or any other, you know, cool talking points for uh, Oregon versus Utah round two in the Pac-12 championship. So, Josh, just kind of wanted to get some of your thoughts from uh, Oregon versus Utah and Salt Lake City. Big win for the Utes, 38-7. to Yeah, I mean, I was, I guess in hindsight, I'm just surprised at kind of how that game played out. Um, I thought it would be close. Um, I don't think anybody who – nobody who pays attention – to the sport, to the conference, to these two teams. I don't think any of those people really thought that Utah would come out and that this game would be completely one-sided because that's what it was. You know, Utah dominated in all three facets. You know, they ran for a bunch of yards. Um, Obviously, they held Oregon um, to seven points. Utah's special teams, which have largely been a mess, you know, throughout the season, you know, they got the Britton Covey 78-yard punt return for a touchdown. It, It was just so jarring just how how one-sided it was you know not not necessarily surprised that utah won just surprised um the way utah won just completely dominating that game yeah the the we it was interesting because the last time we were talking on the preview you were saying it was a game of momentum and man just the the way that utah came out in that one they just really delivered the opening punch and just took it to oregon they dominated that one from from start to finish i think a big storyline in that one was was just how Oregon wasn't able to to run the ball. And then on defense, they were just getting the, the ball ran at them the whole game. Tavion Thomas had a heck of a game. And I feel like that's going to be a, a huge area that they need to improve on if they if they want to have a shot against Utah, um, just with with uh, the way that first game transpired and, and how they've really rooted their identity in the trenches and how the success of their offense has really been, you know, dependent on them being able to run the ball effectively. Yeah, no, I I don't disagree with anything you said. Um, these teams have played in the very recent past. It's not like this game was. It's not like the first game was played in September or even October. Because if you had game one then to now, it would be two completely different teams. Uh, this game was played, you know, 13 days ago. You know, you're not gonna get a, a ton ton better in 13 days. So I mean, you know, the same the same keys for Utah in the first game, you know, slow down Travis Dye, deal with Kayvon Thibodeau, uh, you know, make Anthony Brown beat you. The same keys that were present on November 20th, I think a lot of those same keys will come into play on Friday night when these two teams play again, obviously with much higher stakes. 
yeah, that, that's what was kind of interesting because I was, you know, kind of thinking, how do I, what's my content, you know, plan as a, as a writer, you know, what's going to be different uh, this time around, you know, we already kind of did the, we already know the the good players to watch for Utah, obviously Cam Rising has, has been their story on offense along with Tavion Thomas and then Devin Lloyd, Nephi Sewell, and, and uh, obviously a lot of big guys up front. So it's kind of weird just the, the way that, um, you know, this thing shook out. I guess, you know, that might be a, a good uh, a good question to ask you. You know, how, how do you think, you know, d- does it give Utah an advantage, the fact that they, they just played? You know, how do you think the recency is going to come into play here? I think the recency does come into play a little bit just because, again, I don't think I don't think either side is going to come through with, you know, major wholesale changes to their game plan. Um, obviously, there, you know, there will be some tweaks and some adjustments from both sides, but for all intents and purposes, what you saw on November 20th, you know, that is what you're going to see for the most part um, on Friday night. Now I've never been one to believe in, you know, if it's football, you know, people say that it's hard to beat the same team twice in a season. I, I've never really signed on to that. If you're talking about basketball, people say, well, it's hard to beat the same team, you know, three times in a season. I, I you know, I just don't believe that. I, I feel like each game is its own entity. So Utah won this game, on November 20th, 38-7, and that's that's in the past. That's, you know, that's that game. That was a true road game for Oregon. This one is obviously on a neutral field in Vegas. You know, each game is its own separate entity. Um, but, again, you know, the recency thing, yeah, that might come into play just because the two games were um, – or the two games will have been played um, so close to one another. So you're not going to see, you know, major crazy changes to either team, I think. Yeah, that, that's a good point. It's just kind of a, an interesting situation that we don't often find ourselves in. Um, kind of makes you wonder, you know, is is the Pac-12 potentially going to do? I think what the Big Twelve does, they they don't do the divisions for the Pac-12 the title game. They just do, you know, the two best teams with the best records. Um, but I mean, I feel like this year with the way that things have transpired, it's it's pretty cut and dry as far as these two teams are the best that the, you know, the PAC 12 has to offer, you know, there, there was a chance for some more shakeup in the North with, with how things went with, um, you know, Washington state and Oregon state, but the ducks got that, that went over Oregon state to hopefully get a little bit of momentum, um, you know, heading into this uh, Utah game. I thought it was big for them in that game, Josh, just to, to get back to their identity, to, to show that, you know, what they have been doing all season to a degree works, but clearly I feel like there's, you know, you can only be so optimistic about that game, seeing that Oregon State, Utah, two very different teams. Yeah, just back to a point you made previously. Yes, sure. you know, the, you know, the Big Twelve. You know, they don't do divisions; they go with the top two teams. And it sounds like at some point here, in the nearish future, the Pac-12 may scrap divisions and and go with the top two teams. Now, you you know, you did bring up that you know Utah and Oregon ultimately did get to the title game. But let's not forget that, you know, four loss Washington State went into the final weekend of the season, you know, potentially, you know, still playing for a, a division title. Um, that would have looked, you know, pretty poor for that would have looked pretty poor for the Pac-12 if four loss Washington State won the North, maybe even wound up in the Rose Bowl. So from a from a big picture conference perspective, I do think if you're trying to get you know your best team not to the Rose Bowl. If you're trying to get your best team to the playoff, it's probably in the Pac-12's best interest to scrap divisions and go with the top two teams just so you're not dealing with a situation, you know, like a Washington State, like a, you know, three, four loss Oregon State team. Like it worked out because you're getting Oregon, Utah, but you were pretty close to looking kind of silly if Washington State had gotten there. Exactly. So who knows if that'll actually be what ends up happening. You have uh, you know, expand. I know there was another playoff expansion meeting today. I don't think that there was anything too crazy coming out of that. Um, as far as I know, I might have to circle back and check on that. Um, and then we obviously have the the coaching carousel as far as that, you know, is you're talking about, you know, conference picture. Before we get really into the thick of this preview, Josh, I actually meant to kind of open with this. Um, the coaching carousel is obviously a super hot topic right now um, in, in uh, college football and really out West here with, with USC bringing on Lincoln Riley, Washington bringing on Kalen DeBoer. And uh, I think that that's really related to one of the last points that you were talking about with, you know, ultimately the PAC 12 is trying to get a team to the playoff. And I think a big part of that 
is is elevating the floor of your conference so that you're playing more quality games during the season, not so much, you know, just relying on those non-con games. And then here, ultimately, where Oregon and Utah find themselves, um, you know, in the conference title game as the two higher highest ranked teams in the conference. Yeah. Um, you know, it's going to be interesting in the future what the – what ultimately the college football playoff looks like, you know, eight teams, 12 teams, obviously we're at four uh, right now, you know, the sec, you know, has certainly um, indicated that they believe four is the best number. If you're the big 12 or the pac 12, you know, an expanded playoff is certainly in your favor. Um, From a Utah perspective, it is interesting because the athletic director here, Mark Harlan has kind of made it a point to try to beef up, um, be you know excuse me beef up his non-conference football schedule you know for years they were you know when they were in the mountain west they would be playing fcs teams and other group of five type teams maybe they would step up on you know once in a while and play a power five team and it's kind of been the same here as a pac-12 member um kind of playing you know a, a group of five maybe you play weber state or southern utah and then once in a while you might step up in class and play a power five but Harlan has kind of come in here and look, they open next season at Florida, you know, Arkansas, Baylor, um, you know, some other power fives are, are going to come along. So it's, it's just interesting where this whole thing is going. And then you, you know, you bring in, you know, the alliance between the ACC, the big 12 and the PAC 12. How is that going to affect things with an expanded playoff? Do you go from nine PAC 12 games down to eight? Does everybody go from nine to eight? It's it's just a it's just an interesting situation, and I don't know that there's going to be a consensus here, um, you know, to get things done in a timely fashion. Yeah, no. So we'll we'll have to see what happens with that. But um, with, with regard to the carousel, you know, Utah isn't really uh, hasn't really been affected right now, um, Josh. So I kind of just wanted to get your your thoughts. You know, you're a guy that covers a Pac-12 team. Obviously, Utah has really made a name for themselves at Winningham since uh, coming to this conference at least over the past, you know, three or four years as one of those contending teams from the South uh, for, you know, a Pac-12 title. What are your thoughts, kind of reactions just to the – maybe we can start with the, the two hires um, for the Pac-12. Yeah, obviously the Lincoln-Riley thing was a bombshell going from, uh, coming from Oklahoma, you know, to USC. You know, Lincoln-Riley ha- has kind of uh, made his bones here – as a as a quarterback guy right he's had you know quarterbacks win the heisman um you know compete for a heisman trophy you know they've been to the playoff a few times they've turned into a big 12 power and i think the assumption here is that lincoln riley is going to come west he's going to recruit southern california and usc is just going to take over the pac-12 which they you know they were obviously a pac-10 power for many many years on under pete carroll you know, that fan base has high expectations. They demand national championships. It's one of those programs where the fan base for good, better, uh, better, worse, or otherwise, they are demanding national championships. And I think the perception here now is that Lincoln Riley is the guy that can deliver those things. Time will tell, but that is certainly the, you know, that's certainly the perception right now. Um, Kalen DeBoer, I mean, I like that higher. Um, I think with... With Jen Cohen, the AD at Washington, having whiffed on Jimmy Lake, I thought Jen Cohen was in a position where she, you know, maybe you don't swing for the fences. Maybe you come up with a, you know, a rational, reasonable, safe-ish hire. And Kalen DeBoer kind of fits that bill. You know, a group of five guy who's had success in the Mountain West at Fresno State. You bring him in. You're not breaking, you know, your entire piggy bank. I mean, they're paying him $3.1 million to start. That's a, a substantial raise for Kalen DeBoer. But it's not, you know, it's not at the level of, uh, you know, a Stanford or e- even a Utah where Kyle Whittingham is over $4 million. I, I like that hire for Washington. I like that hire as well, um, you know, especially with, with it looking like uh, all signs are pointing towards Hayner joining him uh, in Seattle. That'll certainly give him a little bit of momentum. But, man, he's got his work cut out there. Same goes at Lincoln Riley, but I feel like he has a lot more at his disposal to uh, get the Trojans program, you know, back on track talk about an elite recruiter. He's already got that momentum, already has Malachi Nelson, the quarterback committed in 23. So uh, I think that, yeah, these moves are overall, they're, they're good for the PAC 12. It's just going to make it more competitive. Um, hopefully, you know, attract some more attention, help them get a little bit more respect nationally. 
Um, but yeah, we're starting to get some questions. It looks like heading into this one, uh, Josh, is there any more remarks that you kind of wanted to have as far as the, the carousel and, and is there any kind of a Utah angle there maybe? There's not a, you know, there's not a huge Utah angle. I mean, you know, Kyle Whittingham probably has, he, he has as much job security for a guy at this level as almost anybody else in the country. Um, you know, he is going to retire at the University of Utah when he decides to retire. His contract is kind of is kind of built in a manner where when he does retire, he takes on a role as a special as a special assistant to the athletic director. So long story short, he's going to get paid by the University of Utah through 2033. Whenever wow. he retires, he's still going to get paid. So, um, and look, in, in years past, he flirted with other jobs, Tennessee, Michigan, among them. I think if Kyle Whittingham was going to leave or even entertain the, you know, the the possibility of leaving, I think he would have done it years ago. So there isn't there isn't really a direct uh, link to the coaching carousel in Salt Lake City, but it's going to be interesting to see how, you know, to see how Utah kind of deals with specifically USC because, you know, again, Lincoln Riley is a is a grade A top-notch recruiter, while Kyle Whittingham and his staff have largely, you know, built their reputation on um, not, you know, they don't get the five-star guys. They are starting to get a few more of the four-star guys, but the meat and potatoes of what they try to do in terms of recruiting is predicated upon finding the three stars, finding the under-recruited, and turning them into players. So it, I'll, I'll be curious to see how that, you know, kind of plays against what Lincoln Riley is going to do. I think it would be really uh, entertaining to to see you know Whittingham continue to to bring in some some bigger names. We talked about Clark Phillips as a guy that has made an impact in, in that regard the last time we were on the podcast together. Um, but yeah, so I, th I think that we'll have to see if they if anyone uh, ends up you know making their way to Salt Lake City, whether it be in addition to the staff or if someone if one of these new head coaches you know looks and sees what Kyle Whittingham is doing in, in Salt Lake and says, you know, hey, he's he's obviously proven that he can do it and he's brought in some some good staffers. So, um, yeah, it'll it'll be something to watch um, for sure. Just another thing that makes college football so fun. You know, I, I'm pretty I'm pretty up for all this chaos because I feel like you don't get it in the NFL. But yes. So let's uh, let's open it up to questions here. Uh, we got our first question uh, from Tibonacci Glass. Um, thank you for your question. Thanks for uh, coming on the show. Uh, he has asked us questions before, and I kind of butchered the name, but I think I got it right there, so hopefully oh. I did. So his question, so it sounds like Moorhead is going to Akron. Is this a, is this a distraction and you know players losing their edge from the news? Uh, is that going to be a reason that we could lose to, to Utah? I think, you know, so yeah, obviously the, the reports have been swirling now. Feldman had another thing this morning, um, just, you know, looking – a report that was saying it was more likely to, to be announced after the Pac-12 title game. So you kind of figure that this could be something that the players are pretty aware of at this point. You know, they have social media, so I don't think anyone's oblivious to it. But I think that it'll be a, you know, to a degree, it'll be a culture test for this uh, this Oregon team, right? You know, you got to just play the game that's in front of you. You got to try to block out all the noise. You know, that was something that this team, I think, has been doing a pretty good job of uh, most of the season. Um, it's really hard to tell unless, you know, you're a coaching staff or someone inside the program that can really tell, you know, how these meetings are going, how the preparation's going, you know, all, all of that stuff. But, um, you know, there was obviously a ton of noise heading into this first Utah game, right, when the playoff hopes were still alive. Yeah. But um, I think that in general, you know, just the, the tone that we've seen from the players, you know, we were talking to Verone McKinley yesterday, and that guy sounds super, super locked in. You think of him as one of the figures and leaders of that defense. I mean, sir, sure, it's there. And I think that, um, you know, it, it's, it might be something on the players' minds, but I feel like, you know, that they're they're going to be pretty focused. And I don't see it playing too much of a factor in this one, especially when you think of the fact that he is coaching and it's not like a, a situation where they're going to maybe have to have Mastro calling plays like when um, they did against Stanford. So I, I get I get the reason to maybe be skeptical about it, but I, I don't I think that they'll uh, you know still be pretty locked in. What do you think about that, Josh? Yeah, no, I agree with you. And, and just to add to that, I mean – it, it shouldn't come as a surprise that Joe Moorhead is getting head coaching offers. I mean, nobody, nobody really thought that Joe Moorhead would be the OC at, you know, at Oregon forever. At some point he was going to become a head coach again. You know, he washed out um, at Mississippi state, had to stop at Penn state. Now he's at Oregon. I mean, at some point Joe Moorhead was going to be a head coach again. Now does the timing stink? Sure. Going into the biggest game 
of the season, shot at the Rose Bowl. You don't need any distractions. Not to say that this is a distraction, but as a as a potential thing going on inside the practice facility, you know, the players are aware of it. You can't avoid these things on social media. So while, you know, again, the timing stinks, but I don't think anybody should be super surprised that Joe Moorhead is going to get a head coaching job again. And I think that that's, you know, a, a sign of, of good programs, right? You bring in good staffers. Like I just said, you know, people see what you're doing, you're having success, and um, they, you know, want to want to come and take some of your your coaches. So we're going to have plenty of coverage of that. You know, it's it's kind of a weird deal with, you know, all these reports coming out and it's looking like it's happening, but it's not official yet. But when that happens, we will be covering uh, a lot of that. Um, kind of feels weird to say when it happens, but uh, have our next question here coming from Sam Kim. This one's for you, Josh, specifically, at least to start out here. Josh, Vegas has their own logic for spreads, but are you surprised the spread is the same for this week's game? What is the confidence level of Utah's players and staff? Yeah, so the first game on November 20th, if I remember correctly, that was also a three, three-and-a-half-point spread. Um, you know, you saw how November 20th went. Then Utah beat Colorado. Oregon beat Oregon State. Now they meet on a neutral field. And I guess last weekend I was thinking that this would be a small single-digit point spread. Uh, that turned out to be correct. You know, it opened at three, maybe three-and-a-half, depending on where you're looking. Uh, to answer your question, Sam, no. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm not surprised by this. Um I don't think Utah is 31 points better than Oregon. I'm not even sure. No, I'm, no, I'm definitely sure they're also not 24 points better than Oregon if you take away the Covey punt return touchdown. Um, yeah, so this is about what I thought. You know, again, um, neutral field. They're not putting 65,000 people in that place on on Friday. Um, I'm expecting a heavy Utah contingent. There's going to be a lot of red there in Vegas. Um, no, I mean, this is about what I thought it would be in terms of a point spread. Um in terms of the confidence level of, of Utah's players and staff, you know, everybody was, um, I would say, pretty even keeled on Monday. You know, we talked to Kyle Whittingham. We talked to the captains and a couple of other guys. You know, guys seem pretty even keeled. I think the older guys, you know, guys like Devin Lloyd, who's been to, you know, two Pac-12 title games already. You know, Britton Covey played in the 2018 title game, you know, was in the stadium in 2019 for that title game. Didn't play, but he was there. You know, Cam Rising has not played in a Pac-12 title game, but he was with Texas when Texas went to the Sugar Bowl. He's been around Utah for a few years now. So, you know, you talk to the you talk to the older guys, and there definitely seems to be, you know, a confidence, not overconfidence, but just a confidence and just knowing what goes into this because a lot of these guys, again, you know, Brant Keithy, Cole Fotheringham, Devin Lloyd, um, who else? Vontae Davis, Solomon Enos. For a lot of these guys, this is their third Pac-12 championship game. They know what to expect. They understand the mental side of it. They understand the preparation that goes into this kind of thing. So, yeah, I think there's a very, you know, even-keeled, you know, reasonable level of confidence coming from Utah this week. And then to, to just kind of flip that, uh, Sam, and, you know, talk about kind of Oregon and, and what I feel like that is. I talked about Verone McKinley and kind of what the vibe was from the players. But I think one thing that makes me more confident this will be a closer game as I feel like Oregon has shown up for the most part this season in bigger games. You look at Ohio State, you look at UCLA, Washington State when they were red hot. Obviously, this Utah game was just a beat down the last time, but I feel like that kind of goes back to the culture that they're going to know what's on the line. Obviously, they they want to go for that three-peat, um, so I feel like there's a little bit of confidence to be had there. Um, but really cool question from, from Sam and, and nice to get some of the insight there from, from you, Josh. I know that Winnieham was talking about those guys, you know, coming back and that was part of their reason that they wanted to, you know, finish the job and, and take the pack. We got another question here. Uh, it's, it's Oregon related, but, um, I think we could probably get, you know, it's cool to get, uh, some thoughts from both sides here. This question is from Eric. Thanks for your question, Eric. Why are there rumors about Rattler coming to Oregon when we have so much talent waiting? That's a great question. I think, um, you know, you, for those listening, you know, obviously you have guys like Ty Thompson, the one that everybody is uh, really excited to see. Uh, they thought that they were going to see him earlier this year when, you know, the, they maybe thought that they were going to see him earlier this year when the boos were raining down, uh, at the Cal game. But so you have him obviously. And then you also have, uh, Robbie Ashford from Alabama. Yeah. He, he looked really impressive in the spring game and, and Jay Butterfield. And you also have Tanner Bailey, who's committed in the 2022 class, um, out of Alabama as well. So I, I, I'm not really sure why these these rumors are uh, happening. I mean, I think maybe you just think of his play style and 
and how, uh, you know, Oregon's had the reputation of the high-flying, high-powered offense, which I really don't think applies so much anymore. That's not to say that the offense is bad, but it's just so rooted in, in the run game. They're, they're not going tempo most of the time. They're very much so ground and pound, you know, play action every now and then. But I, I don't know. I mean, I don't think I would personally, uh, you know, go for this um, just, uh, you know, based off, you know, how things are going and went in Oklahoma. And, you know, just I don't feel like he quite fits the, the culture that we've seen at Oregon. Um, so that's kind of what I have to say about that. But uh, what, what do you have anything here that you wanted to say, Josh? Yeah, I mean, you know, Spencer Rattler, wherever he does decide to go, he's probably, you know, probably a place where he would um, he would play right away. You know, as you just indicated, Oregon is, is probably not a place where he plays right away. Um, assuming that there's no crazy transfers or draft decisions at Utah, He's, he's not getting on the field at Utah right away. I mean, it is it is Cam Rising's offense, not only now, but going into spring ball in a few months. Uh, Jock Quinton Jackson behind him. You know, I did see one thing. I forget where I read it. It might have been 24-7, kind of just like lobbing out some some possibilities for Spencer Rattler. And the one that caught my attention um, was Arizona State. Um, Spencer Rattler went to Pinnacle, obviously in Arizona. Um, Jalen Daniels seems to have – if not regressed, he certainly has not taken a gigantic step forward. So if you're Herm Edwards and that staff, I mean, how much more patience do you have with Jaden Daniels? I mean, yeah. So, you know, for, for a couple of reasons, you know, Spencer rather winding up in, in Tempe, at least to me, made some sense. I think him and Chip Kelly would be pretty interesting too. If you look at them at a, at a place to play early DTRs, uh, you know, looking like he's probably going to be going to the draft and, they also have Justin Martin, a guy who's committed in the 2022 class. I've seen him play in person, and that guy's a baller. So uh, we'll have to see what happens with this one. I, I mean, I personally don't want Oregon to take a transfer just because if you look at the way that that the QBs have kind of you know gone here and the, the paths that they've all had, you had Mariota, and then after that you had Vernon Adams, and then you brought in Dakota Prukop, and those were both one-year rental guys. And uh, obviously you, you look at Herbert and – he got thrown into the fire in that beat down against Washington as a freshman. And I mean, he obviously turned into be a phenomenal player, but that wasn't their go-to plan. That wasn't their ideal situation. They just kind of had to do it. Um, So I think that, and then you obviously had Chuck here for a year and you only had Brown here as the starter for a year. So I really don't think that taking a a transfer is, is a good idea right now, especially not a grad transfer. I think, you know, if Rattler were to come or some other transfer quarterback, a guy who has multiple years of eligibility, I think that would be a better situation because then you can actually pitch development to some recruits to a degree. But um, overall, I don't really like that too much. But um, we have some more questions here, so appreciate the question, Eric. This one, next one's coming from Jonathan. Thanks for the question. I think the game at night, Oregon plays during the day, 39 degrees in Salt Lake, Utah 6-0 at home. Uh, Utah is 3-3 on the road, gave up 29 to Arizona, a 1-10 team. Oregon lost their chance to be national champions. Um is the revenge strong? I think it's kind of what Jonathan was getting uh, at in this question. Maybe he just didn't type it out uh, exactly how he wanted to, but yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the revenge aspect, I feel like has to be uh, a pretty big part of it. You think about how they got Oregon got their playoff hopes dashed against uh, Arizona state in 19 when Herbert was here. I mean that, that I feel like, I don't know. How do you kind of uh, evaluate that revenge aspect, Josh? You know, do you think that it's uh, you know going to be something that could help decide this one? I think the revenge aspect in general is is a little overblown. You know, so, you know some media around my way they were you know they were giving questions to Devin Lloyd and and some of the other guys talking about well you know Oregon ruined Utah's chances at, at the playoff in 2019. Utah ruined Oregon's chances at the playoffs two weeks ago. The revenge factor. You know they kind of sidestep those questions. I personally think that whole thing is overblown it's over it's done like this is where we are um there is no playoff fine but there is still something significant to play for right the winner's going to the rose bowl and the Ro- and the rose bowl is still a big deal it's not the college football playoff you know but the rose bowl is is, is kind of its own thing it's a big deal um no nah, i mean you know i i understand fans wanting to latch on to you know the you know the revenge factor I, I do get that, but I, I do think it's just a tad overblown. Yeah, I'm there with you. You know, I mean, we're we're both journalists, so we kind of know that that people want to latch onto that and and you know run run with it as a storyline. 
Um, you know, I'll, I'll be honest. I've typed it in a, in a couple little teasers, you know, in my stories, like can we can get revenge, but I'm not saying it's like a, a huge thing. And, and I don't think any of the players are really viewing it like that. At least they don't say that uh, outwardly in the media, right. You know, they're not going to say, Oh, we want to, we want to get it back against uh, Utah. And, and that's really what's fueling us just, I mean, maybe that just is because of how, you know, we don't get a lot of, you know, really juicy headline worthy stuff from uh, these players, at least not out in Eugene. Um, so I think it's uh, it's something to be aware of, but who knows how much of an impact it's really going to have. We got another question coming from Ryan. What's Oregon going to do to stop Tavion Thomas in the Utah run game? How open do their tight ends get as a result? Feels like a no win situation there. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, even though Oregon did really well against Oregon State last week um, against the run, I think it was 85 yards in total that they allowed. That was obviously a, a really improving, uh, sorry, a really positive sign to see of some improvement. But at the same time, I feel like you can't take too much away from that because we go back to the game script and how Oregon got out to a big lead. So obviously you're not going to be running the ball that much. So kind of similar to what we saw against uh, Utah for the Ducks a couple weeks ago. Um, I mean, I think some fans still wanted to see some more running from the Ducks, but when you're down like that, you really got to try to get explosive pass plays, which has not been a strength of this Oregon team this year. So as far as stopping the run, I mean, I think I look at guys like uh, Jason Jones. Uh, he's a nose tackle that has really, uh, I think, come around for the Ducks here this year in his you know first first season of you know pretty decent playing time. He had a couple numerous plays uh, against Oregon State where he just totally blew up the line or you know, really just drove his guy back and, you know, kind of followed him as he was blocking to, to kind of sniff out those, those plays. So they really got to bring it up front. I think that's where it starts. You know, you got to have that physicality and that tenacity, obviously uh, you got to, you know, make sure that the running backs or sorry, the linebackers are filling their lanes. That's a, a huge part of it. So we'll see how Jeffrey boss is doing. You know, he talked about a newer guy that looks a lot more comfortable Jackson LaDuke as well. He's going to be uh, pretty big in this game, I think, because it looks like uh, Keith Brown, freshman, isn't a freshman for the Ducks, isn't going to be able to go. So I think that's where it starts. But this is kind of a two-part that we can do a lot with. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Yeah, look, Utah's offensive line had injuries late in training camp um into the regular season they've had you know an injury sprinkled here an injury sprinkled there and they just keep plugging guys in i mean utah's offensive line has won up front for the last nine and a half games they just continue to win you know the battle in the trenches no matter who's in there and again i you know i talk about injury here injury there like there's another injury now i mean keaton bills at left guard had missed three weeks, uh, comes back on Friday against Colorado, gets rolled up on. Um, Johnny Maia comes in for Bills. That was short-lived. Uh, a true freshman kid by the name of Michael Mokofisi comes in, and he was really good. Uh, you know, Kyle Whittingham said Monday that he thought that Mokofisi was um, outstanding. Um, looked like a true freshman at times, made some mistakes, but he played physical, and he was very good. So – you know, that's kind of the big injury thing, um, you know, unless something crazy happened in practice this week that we're not aware of, that's kind of the big injury nugget right now is can Keaton Bills go at left guard? And if Bills cannot go, it's probably going to be a true freshman kid, Michael Mokofisi, who, again, as a young kid, is obviously stepping into the biggest, you know, spotlight of his young career. But, you know, again, big picture, 
Utah's offensive line has been has been great, um, including against Oregon. Um, you know, Nick Ford has looked like an All Pac-12 guy at uh, at center. He also saw some time at left guard. Uh, Bam Olaseni, who was just the biggest human being I've ever seen, like six eight, three fifty. You know, they <laughs> they've waited. You know, he, he he's a kid from Britain. Didn't grow up playing um, American football. Went to junior college. Came to Utah. And the you know the coaching staff has really been patient and waited and waited for Olaseni to show up, and he's you know he's had an all Pac-12 type of season at left tackle. The offensive line for you know for all the problems for all the for all the injuries for all the shuffling, the offensive line has been a huge huge positive for Utah. Yeah, and that kind of makes me think back to to the Oregon Oregon State game as far as what we could take from that. So maybe we don't take too much away from you know how they did defending the run, but just as a front seven. I think that was a, a big uh, improvement, area of improvement that we saw from that Utah game because that that Oregon State line, Josh, that they're they're nominated for the Joe Moore Award, so they're they're no slouch at all. And I think that that was uh, definitely a, a good positive that that we saw from Oregon and Kayvon Thibodeau looked like he was doing a lot better than he did against Utah. I mean, Utah obviously, I think they did a good job scheming for him. You know, I saw some some double uh, double teams, you know, two tight end sets. I know Utah likes to do that a lot. Um, so I think that, uh, there's some growth there, but it's, you know, we can only talk about it so much. We got to see how they really look when, once they get on the field. Yeah. Utah's a tough matchup. Um, you know, you mentioned two tight ends. Utah loves to go 12 personnel. Utah can even go three personnel, uh, not three personnel, 13 personnel, um, with brand Keithy and Dalton Kincaid and Fotheringham. you know, two of the touchdown passes from rising on Friday, against Colorado. One was like right up the seam to Keithy untouched. And the second one was again up the seam to Kincaid who, who, who shed a tackler and, and walked right in. So I don't know how many teams in the PAC 12, even the country are, are, you know, going legitimate 13 personnel with three tight ends who can all catch the ball. But Utah has, has really made, Hey, you know, using those three often. Yeah. When I was watching that, the, the Oregon, sorry, not the Oregon game, the Utah, and uh, Colorado game got them all over the place today. Sorry about that. Um, when I was watching that game, you know, that that was one of the um, highlights that I really saw was just, um, you know, was rising, standing in the pocket, looking through his progression. And yep. that ball just looks super lively coming out of his arm, coming out of his hand. So obviously those guys are going to be really big because I think that that was one of the big areas that that uh, Oregon got hurt in was obviously the tight ends getting the ball, but the middle of the field felt so wide open at times in yep. that first game. So, um, you know, you're going to – Tim DeRuiter going to have his challenges there, uh, just feeling what we can do to – what they can do to scheme uh, around that and, and, you know, see some improvements there. So they're going to be some some guys to watch for sure in this one. And the tight ends are super exciting. Hopefully the Oregon tight ends can get a little bit more involved because we really haven't seen much from them of late. But uh, that was a great question, Ryan. Uh, had some good discussion. Next question from uh, Nick. Nick, uh, thanks for your question, man. This game will hinge on Anthony Brown. If he has a bad game, we will lose. If he has the type of game he had versus Oregon State, we will win. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to disagree with that statement, right? You saw how, uh, you know, I don't want to say that Brown was the reason that they lost to Utah because that game was just, they just got outplayed in, in every aspect, right? They got out coached, they got out physical. Uh, Utah just looked like they wanted it more. But in a sense, I feel like, depending on how they do with the run. If, I mean, if I'm Utah, I want to put them in that same situation, right? You know, I want to make yep. Anthony Brown beat me. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. If you're, if you are Morgan Sully, the Utah defensive coordinator, you want to stop Travis Dye, you want to stop Byron Cardwell, and you want to make Anthony Brown beat you. And that's kind of how it, that's kind of how it shaped up in the first meeting, right? Utah did the job on Dye, did the job on Cardwell and just, Anthony Brown did not rise to the moment. I mean, let's be honest. He, he really did not play, did not play well at all. Um, give him a lot of credit for the way he played at Oregon state coming off the Utah game. I, I watched most of the Oregon, Oregon state game. I thought Brown was terrific, not only with his arm, but also, you know, with his legs, he went for like three fifty all purpose. He was, he was outstanding. If you get, if you get that type of game from Anthony Brown, I think Utah's in trouble. If Utah can, you know, put it on Brown's shoulders, stop the run. I like Utah. Yeah. I, I mean, that's definitely a, a reasonable, a reasonable way to look at things. Um, 
I think also something that's a little encouraging for me, you know, from the Oregon perspective is, um, you know, Chris Hudson was one of the only bright spots in that Utah game. And, and he was able to, to show some consistency and he had another good performance uh, against Oregon state catching his first uh, college touchdown. And then we've seen Devin Williams. He's obviously the the number one guy at receiver at this point. There's no, there's no debating that. So uh, Anthony Brown has some weapons at his disposal. Um, I think that, you know, you look at the timeliness of, of Johnson and red going down in the receiver core and, and Pittman's departure, obviously not ideal, but um, you know, we're still seeing some signs of life from, from those two guys, just the, the receiver, you know, core is doing, doing everything that they can. We'll see if DJ Johnson's going to be back. You know, he's someone who's uh, really, really hard to bring down. I mean, every time that guy touches the ball, it feels like the first guy misses or can't bring him down. So look to see if he'll be more involved. Um, he didn't play for the third consecutive game last week. Um, and uh, we're going to have to see if, um, if he'll be able to go um, when, when the game comes around for that. But uh, yeah, some sources for optimism there. And then Troy Franklin does, uh, does good things when he gets the ball in open space. So, um, you know, I think that kind of plays to Brown's strengths, just, you know, some of those quick passes, short passes. Yeah. Um, you want to see more, obviously, as, as an offense. But at the same time, if I'm Oregon, it's like, okay, this is what has worked, you know, throughout the season. So you don't want to you don't want to try to be something you're not, which is ultimately what Oregon was forced to do the last time they played this game. I don't know if you had any more there. If We have some. Yeah, some no. More yeah, just a. Just to add to what you said, I mean, like we said at the top, they they played each other 11 days ago. They didn't play each other two months ago. What you saw 11 days ago, you're largely going to see on Friday night. Um, no major changes, no wholesale changes, nothing with either lineup. Sure, an adjustment, a tweak, a little bit here, a little bit there. But for all intents and purposes, the the things you saw on November 20th, you're going to see again on Friday night. Definitely. So we'll we'll see how how Oregon kind of tweak things and and you know make some strides hopefully in some areas. But like you're saying, Josh, it's a quick turnaround. Next question coming from Eric: Who are the top candidates to replace Moorhead? Um, I think that some of the some of the names that um, I've kind of been thinking about. You know, this is one of the things that I'm trying to work on. Is I haven't had to. I've never been covering Oregon when they've uh, you know had to make some some staffing changes. So you know, obviously, if you're just tuning in, uh, there's been a lot of reports about. Morehead going to uh, being linked to the Akron job. So we're kind of, uh, you know, playing a little things a little bit ahead. But um, I think that some of the names that I feel like are kind of interesting, um, you know, you think about um, Tom Herman. I think he's a guy that that, that could be an interesting name um, just because, you know, when he was at Texas, you think about that and, and he's he was recruiting his tail off. I think that was one of the reasons that Texas had a lot of momentum at the time when he was there. Obviously things didn't uh, go quite the way that he wanted to um, when he was out there, but I think that would maybe be a name to throw out there. Um, Dan Mullen, you know, he, he just got let go, but that doesn't mean that he's not a good offensive coach. I think that that's kind of obviously what, uh, what made him, uh, you know, helped him get his name in this. And then um, I think another name that is kind of uh gaining some uh some steam here is uh out of the acc i'm trying to pull it up right now so uh brendan marion um wide receivers coach at pittsburgh but i think you know because they're they're doing pretty well you know i i can't remember their the name of their quarterback but i know he was kind of in the heisman conversation and you think about how weird the the season's been there really hasn't been that guy that's like absolutely just blown everybody away right um but I think whoever ends up replacing Moorhead, you know, once that, that news is, is official, um, they're going to have to recruit. They really are because I think that that's – especially with Riley coming to USC, you know they're going to get uh, a lot of good skill guys. What, what do you think about this one, Josh? Yeah, Dan Mellon would be interesting. I mean, we know that he got fired at Florida, but, I mean, that was more a case of, you know, an agitated fan base and, and guys with deep pockets who, who were willing to make a change. Um Dan Mullen went to the New Year's six twice. He won 10 games. He won 11 games. He won eight games last year under very difficult circumstances with the pandemic. And he's an offensive guy. I mean, you know, he, he was a quarterback coach under Urban Meyer at Utah, you know, 15, 18 years ago at this point. He was the OC at Florida, had a lot of success at Mississippi State um, before he went to Florida. I mean, if Dan Mullen wound up at Oregon, to me, that's a home run for Oregon. And really, who, whoever gets Dan Mullen, potentially gets Dan Mullen as an OC, I think that would be a tremendous hire for somebody. 
Yeah, and then with with Herman, he's he's working with the Bears, I believe. He's an offensive analyst. So I don't know. Those are always interesting because I feel like once guys get out of the college ranks, you know, are they going to want to come back to to college? Since so many people are trying to to get to the college level, so I think that'll be something to monitor for sure. So a lot of Oregon fans. I mean, I don't know if I should say a lot, but some Oregon fans have thrown out Mark Helfrich, which I think would be kind of interesting i mean obviously things did not go well when he was the head coach but their offense was pretty strong uh you know when he was the oc here that doesn't strike me as something that's gonna work or happen you know not to use everyday analogies but i mean you don't get divorced from somebody because you get along you don't get divorced because things are are going well you don't go you know you don't go backwards so that's you know that's my thought on that Gotcha. If you're uh, just joining us on the live show on uh, YouTube, talking with Salt Lake Tribune, Utah beat writer, Josh Newman. Uh, Josh, I think one of the other areas, you know, obviously we're always asking for questions. I think it's fun to, to let you guys kind of guide the show here. But um, one of the other areas that we kind of talked about uh, just as you know, an idea for the show, um, you know, obviously my listeners want Oregon to win. Um, and that's kind of what, I don't know if that's what they're assuming. I think it's kind of 50, 50, you know, there's some confidence there after last week, but there's also some realists that are kind of along the lines of what you're saying with, I don't know if they can make up that many points that quickly. And obviously Utah knows, uh, what to expect to a degree from Oregon, but I, I guess I just want to say I'm playing devil's advocate here. What, what do you think a win would mean for Utah? Uh, you know, obviously winning the Pac-12 would be huge and, and just the trajectory of the program given the state of the Pac-12. So um, no matter what happens on Friday, I think the trajectory of the program is is up. I don't really think that's up for debate. Um, they got to the title game in 18, got to the title game, got to the doorstep of the playoff in 19, and they're back in the title game. And they're young, so they're probably going to be good again moving forward so no matter what happens friday night the trajectory of kyle whittingham's program is going upwards that's one um what would a win friday night mean for the program i mean obviously you're going to your first rose bowl um and not only are you going to your first rose bowl but utah has only been a pac-12 member for 11 years not a long time they're a, a very relative newcomer so to get to the rose bowl in year 11 when 11 years means you have not had three full recruiting classes, that's a huge accomplishment if, if Utah can get to a Rose Bowl in, in this short a time span. Um, what does it mean? You know, what does it mean moving forward beyond that? I mean, look, you, you get to a Rose Bowl, Kyle Whittingham, who's been the head coach um, since Urban Meyer left, Kyle Whittingham would be at the pinnacle, essentially. Um, not of his profession, but of his time at the University of Utah. I don't know that it's reasonable to expect Utah to be annually contending to get to the playoff, but I do think it is reasonable to expect Utah to be contending for the Pac-12 every year. So, you know, there's that to consider. Kyle Whittingham, you know, getting to the getting to the proverbial mountaintop, getting his program to, you know, the highest reasonable peak that it can get to. And then you start considering, and this has kind of been like out there, not really rooted in fact, but, you know, does Kyle Whittingham walk away if they win the Rose Bowl? You know, we've talked a lot you know, the last couple of weeks about, you know, Kyle just turned 62. Um, he has said publicly before that he does not intend to coach past 65. Um, the toll of having – yeah, so that's, you know, that's one thing. So you take that, then you consider, well – what has the emotional, physical, spirit, spiritual toll been of having two players die in nine months, um, plus the difficulties of the pandemic? So you take the age, 62, doesn't want to coach past 65, the two deaths, you know, potentially winning a Rose Bowl. Would this be a good opportunity for Kyle Whittingham to walk away? There's nothing indicating that, you know, that he will, but I think there's enough there that you need to at least consider – what his long-term future looks like um, if they're able to win this game Friday night and get to a Rose Bowl. It's been a, been a heck of a year for, for Utah. Obviously a, a lot going on with that program. You know, you talk about uh, the tragedy of, of, of Ty Jordan. That was, uh, you know, super sad to hear. 
Um, but I think I think it would obviously mean a lot for them. You go back to your point of, of them only being in the conference for for so long. And, um, you know, I think people kind of wrote them in Colorado off for, for a while as the younger members of the conference. But Utah's shown behind Kyle Whittingham that they're they're going to be I think they're kind of already in that Pac-12 contention every year, even if the media doesn't give them a, a whole lot of praise, um, you know, in the preseason polls. But just from what I've seen from them, um, I feel like he's one of those coaches that, you know, is going to have, you know, his, his players playing well. I think I think back to, to Oregon basketball for a little bit of a parallel here. They're having some highs and lows to start their basketball season. But come March, Dana Altman always has his teams playing their best. So I don't know if that's in a direct comparison here with uh, with Kyle Whittingham. But I feel like, you know, there's definitely a reason to have faith in the product that he's putting out on the field each year. And then we talked earlier about the recruiting. And if the recruiting gets better, I mean, I feel like that's only going to raise the ceiling for this program. Yeah, you know, the recruiting thing is – that's another interesting thing about where the program kind of goes long-term. I mean, you know, Kyle Whittingham has fully bought into the transfer portal and what the transfer portal can give you in terms of um, immediately eligible power five level help. Um, you know, he pulled Charlie Brewer out of the portal. Obviously that didn't work out fine. Cam Rising's a portal guy. Uh, Tavion Thomas was a junior college guy, not portal, but a transfer, um, you know, Dalton Kincaid, who's had a great year at tight end. So, you know, as this early signing period approaches in about two and a half weeks, Utah only has nine high school recruits verbally committed going into that early signing period. Who knows how how much more they get before uh, uh, December 16th. But Kyle has said that he he fully intends to, you know, at least save some spaces, uh, not, you know, not load up early knowing that you you know you're going to want to hit the portal and find guys who can help you immediately versus loading up on high school kids who you're going to have to coach up for two or three years. It's another part of the game that we're seeing become more and more prevalent, right? You know, recruiting versus transferring, roster management uh, with guys being immediately eligible now. Oregon, um, you know, to kind of give the comparison there, I feel like they really haven't been, uh, you know, too heavy in the transfer portal. Um, you look at guys like DJ Johnson who came over from Miami, that's a recent transfer that kind of comes to mind. Uh, Anthony Brown, obviously, uh, coming over from Boston College. Um, let's see. I'm trying to think of other guys. Brian Addison, I don't really know if, if he counts as a transfer because he originally committed to UCLA, um, but I don't think he ever actually got there. So that's somebody you can think about. But, uh, it's yeah, it's it's uh, obviously part of the game. That's why I enjoy covering recruiting so much is because you're always – something's always happening. Uh, that's how you, you know see what the future of the program is going to be looking like kind of like a behind the scenes type of deal, if you want to call it that. But um, we've got about 10 more minutes here on the, on the show. We're still getting some questions. So if you're, uh, if you're out there on the show, uh, consider showing, sending some questions. Got another one from Nick. It's not so much question, but uh, rather a talking point. Uh, Oregon was lousy and stopping third downs against Utah. Got to put pressure on Cam and not let him scramble for first downs. Yeah. That, that, that third down defense was pretty, pretty atrocious. I think it was 11 for 14. Yep. It just, it, I feel like that game, you know, it's probably a overstatement, but just that game when you're so severely lacking in one aspect, it just it shows you how the whole thing has to be working together. It's, you know, obviously a, a team sport, but when the defense can't get off the field, that's just putting more stress on the offense to perform. And then when they can't sustain drives, that's not giving the defense any rest. But um, against Oregon State, they, they did show some improvement in, in that area. Uh, held them to four of 10 on third down. So, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on, on third down defense? And and do you think that that's an area that, that Oregon can hopefully improve dramatically? Because you talked about, you know, you can only do so much in a short period of time. But, you yeah. know, I think that if they can put them in some more manageable situations, then that's an area that could improve quite a bit. Yeah, the third down defense by Oregon two weeks ago, you know, was really bad. As you said, 11 of 14, uh, Utah was on third down and yeah, rising has the ability, you know, when the pocket collapses, he will tuck it and you know, he, he will go. Um, Oregon needs to get off the field and Utah's special teams, especially their, their punt unit has been, has been bad. Um, I think they've had three punts blocked. Two of them returned for touchdowns. If Oregon's defense can get on the field and, and not set up a return, I would, I would set up a block who knows what could happen in this game because Utah's I'm, I'm telling you, like it was Cameron Peasley punting for Utah first. 
Now it's Mikey Williams, and it's been an adventure anytime anybody backs up the punt. I mean, you've had you've had a few instances of, of Cam rising, you know, giving a little pooch kick, um, and it's worked. You know, he, he's a former punter in high school, but you know, if if Oregon's defense can get off the field on third down, force Utah to punt, that's obviously to Oregon's advantage. On this topic, I am curious, you know, if if Oregon is getting third down stops, I am curious to see how much Utah decides to go. Um, you know, if they went a few times against Colorado, you know, we're not talking anything crazy. We're talking about like fourth and, you know, between fourth and one and fourth and three approaching plus territory. It's not like they were going for it on fourth down deep in their own end. So obviously, you know, that's a chess match. That's kind of the game within the game. And, you know, I, again, they had a punt, you know, they had a punt blocked against Colorado. Um, and this has been a season long problem. I, I am curious just what the what is the confidence level in in Utah's punting? I, you know, I assume it's low. So, you know, again, if there's fourth and manageable, fourth and three or, or, or better approaching plus territory, obviously it's a high stakes game. You know, I'm curious to see how, how willing Kyle uh, and and Andy Ludwig will be uh, to go for it on fourth down. Yeah, you, you think back to that that first game that they played this season, Oregon and Utah. I'm, I'm looking at the stats here. It looks like Utah only punted twice, so we didn't really get to see. You know, that just shows you how that offense was just coming on and just yep. rattling off yards and points. Yep. Um, with, with that. But we didn't get to see what, um, you know, how, or at least not that much, how how Oregon's return unit would, would fare. Seven McGee's a guy that has a lot of people excited with him taking pretty much sole ownership of that punt return role. Um, he said since fall camp, I, you know, he's a running back, but he's like, I just want the ball in my hand. I just want to have a, an opportunity to make a play. And, um, you know, obviously that wasn't a strength for Oregon last time these two teams played. And I think part of that was clock management, just the situation that they put themselves in. And then obviously Tom Snee, that punt didn't a- end up where he wanted it to go. I think he was trying to get it out of bounds, you know, deep in into the, you know, uh, Utah territory, but obviously that didn't go well. But yeah, you talk about the the struggles that Utah's had, you know, in that Colorado game, they had a, a kick return, kick returned on them. Um, and we really haven't seen too many. We, I don't know. We've seen maybe three or four like decent returns from, from this Oregon special teams this year. So if you just talk about, you know, now's the time to do it, right? Maybe they're maybe they're due for for a little bit of explosion on special teams this week against Utah. Yeah, it, I, again, it, it's been a bit of a circus. You know, Utah <laughs> Utah has given up three 100-yard kickoff returns for touchdowns. It's just it's amazing. You know, they would have a bad week, they would appear to fix it, another bad week. It's just been and the crazy thing about that is Kyle Whittingham started his coaching career in the early eighties as a special teams coordinator. And he still takes an active role in special teams. He takes it very, very seriously. Like if you can't, if you can't play special teams for Kyle Whittingham, you can't get on the field for him. He takes it very seriously. So the fact that the fact that this is happening at Utah of all places with this coach of all coaches, it's just, it's just crazy. The year that the special teams has had. Yeah, I, I didn't even know that he had that background in special teams. So I feel like from a Utah perspective, you know, that fan base, I feel like that just fuels the frustration even wow. more. <laughs> <laughs> That's but, another statement, I promise. But, yeah, we'll, we'll have to see if, if they can, you know, sharpen up in, in that regard, both teams, really. Um, let's see. Um, there was another question about the coaching carousel, but I kind of just want to keep it uh, focused on on Utah here. Um, you know, Jackson had his comment here. I'm a Utah fan, but the one thing I think that will make or break Oregon this week is getting off the field on third down. So that's back to what we were talking about just now. Uh, another question from Timonachi or a statement, I should say comment, uh, felt like perfect momentum storm with three scores for Utah and zero for Oregon. Then the kick return sealed the end result. If Oregon scores one or two of those first half drives, that's what's the outcome of the game. Yeah. I think we could be looking at a very different situation. It, It definitely felt like, once that happened, you know, you can say what you want, you know, Hey guys, new half zero, zero ball game, right? It, I don't know how you spin that off in, in the locker room, this last game, they were just getting handled manhandled. And it felt like once they, once Britton Covey housed that thing, and especially you consider that being a road game, I'm sure I wasn't there. I'm sure Rice Eccles was erupting. I mean, oh, I, I, I feel like it was decided at that point and not to say it's the same situation this week, but just with how solid of a team Utah has proven to be and how 
you know, for lack of a better word, suspect or inconsistent Oregon's been. Sorry, we have a, sirens here in the background for um, you know how lack how they've lacked consistency. If if Utah gets up two scores, I really don't know where my confidence goes in, in Oregon getting back into that game or this game this week. Yeah, I mean, as you said, at at twenty eight nothing, you know that game was over at halftime. If you if Oregon had gone into the locker room up twenty one nothing, getting the ball out of the locker room, okay, that's still a game. Now remember, they what happened? They missed a field goal and they had one blocked. Um, even mm-hmm. if it was. 14-6, you go to the locker room, 14-6 or 21-6, it's a, it's a game. Um, yeah, I've been thinking about it a lot. Like the way that game played out, especially the first two and a half minutes, uh, excuse me, the last two and a half minutes of the first half was just, you know, incredible what Utah did. Um, but, you know, I mean, this hypothetical, if, I don't know, man, like if, if, if Oregon comes out of playing, if Oregon's up, 14 nothing immediately. I mean, Utah's offense is built to be high octane. I mean, they can score a bunch of points. If Oregon's up 7 nothing, 14 nothing immediately, that's not really a situation that Utah has had to deal with. Utah has taken the ball to start a game for the last 6 weeks and, you know, I think in 4 or 5 of those 6 weeks they've scored on their first possession and they're in control like immediately. So this that that's interesting. This Utah team has not really had to play from behind. I would be curious to see how Utah would operate playing from behind, especially against the caliber of opponent like Oregon. All right. Well, we have one more question I want to get to, and then um, I wanted to get our prediction real quick. I know we got to get out of here real soon, Josh. So hopefully we can hit these real quick. Um, This one coming from James Voss. Hopefully I'm saying that right. People have been claiming that Devin Lloyd is a person that exists on Utah's roster and that he's better than KT. I can't confirm either account. Please help me. I know I saw your tweet about this when Kayvon Thibodeau was announced as the PFF uh, defensive player of the year in the Pac-12. Um, you know, I'll, I'll give you the the reins here. Yeah, I mean, let's just start with this. I mean, we all look at PFF and, and we see what the grading system is. If Devin Lloyd is grading out better than Kayvon Thibodeau over a season, why is Kayvon Thibodeau their defensive player of the year? Why have the rating system if you're not going to go by your rating system? That's one. Um, and look, I'm – I'm objective. I cover the University of Utah, but I'm I'm an objective, unbiased journalist. At least I would like to think I am. And I'm I'm just watching Devin Lloyd week after week, and he is just impacting every game he plays in. Um, you know, the eye test bears that out. The stats bear that out. And that's not to say that Kayvon Thibodeau is not a tremendous defensive player because he is. He's the most – he is the best edge rusher in the country. He's the project – he's among the – potential number one picks for a reason, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about what this season has had, and objectively, Devin Lloyd has had a better season than Kayvon Thibodeau. That's all I was saying this morning. Okay. Yeah, no, I wanted to give you a, a chance to, you know, defend your take, say your piece. Um, I also think, you know, obviously you have all the the draft type, and, you know, you were saying you're acknowledging that. Um, and, you know, as, as great as he's been, there, there have been a couple of games where, um, you know, he's, he's been schemed around. Um, and, you know, obviously that's, that's, you know, that happened against Utah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to say it was a complete non-factor because there are plays it's football, you know, there's, there's plays, especially playing the defensive line coming off the edge. You're going to have impact plays that, that don't still show up in the stat sheet, but Devin Lloyd's been great. He's a guy I want to watch some more film on obviously <coughs> with this matchup coming up. So I uh, appreciate the, the question there, James. Um, and then going to wrap it up here, Josh, with our predictions I'll have you give yours, um, and then I'll give mine, and then we'll get you out of here. Yeah, um, I think it's going to be a much closer game than it was in Salt Lake City. Um, Utah is not 31 points better than Oregon. I I think we can all agree on that. Um, I just don't see how Oregon is making up 31 points in 13 days. You take away the cubby point return, I don't even understand how Oregon is supposed to make up 24 points in 13 days. Close game. I think if Utah is going to win, it's going to have to be a brawl. Um, and that's what it's going to be. Um, Utah 31, Oregon 28, Utes to their first Rose Bowl. All right. Yeah, definitely a, a very close game there. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I have some of the same points as you. You know, I think obviously it was really important, like I kind of said earlier in the show, important to get back on track against Oregon State, get, get some confidence in this team because that was obviously a, a brutal loss. 
Um, you know, the, the tone from the players was, you know, I wasn't in Salt Lake City, but just after seeing the interviews and hearing everything was obviously pretty tough. But um, obviously you got there a lot of stuff to still play for with the Rose Bowl. I, I still feel like Utah is the better overall team. That doesn't mean that they can't get, you know, like Marshawn says, they can't get got or they can't be had on, on any given week. Um, you know, it's college football. Anything can happen. But I feel like Utah has put out a better product consistently throughout the season. Um, and, um, you know, I think obviously they're the hotter team right now. So I think I have I had Oregon 28 to 24. I, I really wanted to pick Oregon for this one. Obviously, it'd be fun to go to the Rose Bowl and see them. But 28-24, I got Utah winning. I think that the turnover battle is going to be crucial. And uh, we're going to be able to tell very early on if, if Oregon's going to be able to be competitive in this game based on how they show up at the line of scrimmage and how Anthony Brown looks at that rushing attack. Yeah, no, that's well said. It's going to be uh, it's going to be interesting. I, I think it's made more interesting, again, by the fact that they're playing twice in 13 days. Uh, it's better than ha- them having played in September, and then you'd be watching two completely different teams now on Friday night. This is going to be – you know, it's going to be an interesting um, – intriguing game i'm curious to see what the fan turnout looks like who who has more fans um it should be fun friday night yeah and then just to your point josh i try to be objective and and you know lay out my case for for that prediction so um maybe it'll inspire some some cool discussion from you know some of my followers and, and readers so ducks play the utes friday night Allegiant stadium in vegas uh around I think it's 514 is the last thing that I saw, but they say yeah. 5 p.m., 514. It's on ABC. Uh, Josh, thanks for coming on, man. Where can people find more more from you? I appreciate you having me, Max. All my stuff is on my Twitter handle, Joshua underscore Newman, uh, or you can hit me at the Salt Lake Tribune website. That's sltrib.com. Awesome stuff. And then uh, if you guys want to find more of me, you can subscribe, um, you can subscribe, subscribe to the channel uh, here, uh, watching on the live stream, Oregon Football Max Taurus. And uh, find me on Twitter at mTaurus Sports, and then all of our handles on social media: Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at Ducks Digest. Uh, had a great time with uh, Josh talking on the show today. Thanks again for coming on, man. And, and we'll see what happens come Friday. Thank you guys for listening to the Ducks Digest. Sorry, the Ducks Dish podcast. And we'll see you in the next one. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants. They all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.